0: Let me, let me jump in uh, uh, if, if I can. I, um, I, again, I, I like to only say one thing every, every week. I don't know if you've learned that about me um, and, and say it in a numerous different ways, but I really only have one thing to say every week. And this week, I, wanna, I just want to echo the heart of Paul uh, to encourage all of you in the room who, who um, you might not even be in like a formal leadership position of any way, but if you have influence, that's leadership. So if you have influence over two, three, four people in your life, you don't have like a microchurch or nobody, you don't have a title or something. You're a leader. You have leadership. Uh, and so it, anytime I'm talking to leaders, I'm talking to you too. And that's going to be almost everybody in the room. And I just want to have a little bit of a word from the heart of this text to every leader in the room. Preach the word, not the itch. Preach the word, not the itch. It's such a timeless text. It's such a timeless message, speaking to the human condition. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers. A great, they'll, they'll go looking, and there will be plenty of options of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. I was, uh, when I was in Illinois, I had the, there was this um, local black plant black pastor that I was really good friends with and once a month we'd get a coffee at Panera which was really it was like a block from my house and I'd just be like what's going on with you and what's going on with me and we'd just talk for a little bit and there was this one time we were getting coffee and one of his congregants was in Panera and she came over and she was like she was like hey pastor can I get a can I get a word for you? she was like I'm so sorry to interrupt can I just get a word with pastor really quick and and I said okay no problem and I was sitting there and she was like uh, pri- privately, pri- privately, <laughs> I was like, oh, "Okay, I got it. I'm good." So I got up and uh, and I went like a, a you know a few chairs away. But it's kind of a small Panera. You, it's a very small Panera. So I'm trying not to listen as best I can, but I don't have any headphones on me. I didn't have my my bag with me or anything. So I happened to overhear what she was wanting to talk to him about. And she, and I guess he had been, and he mentioned this to me, they were in a series that was like a little bit challenging where he was kind of being a little bit hard. He was being a little bit harsh. And she, she wanted to, she just saw him in Panera and she just thought, here's an opportunity. I think I need to talk to him. And she, she was saying, pastor, I just, um, I need you to know that, you know, uh, there's some, there's some people in the church that I've heard that are, are thinking about leaving because you've been a little bit too, you've been a little bit too hard, a little bit too harsh. And he was like, well, tell me more about that. And she, and she used this, uh, she was like, well, Pastor, listen, do you own cats? <laughs> he said, she, she said, do you own cats? And he was like, no, I don't own cats, and I don't know where this is going. But she said, I own several cats. <laughs> and she said, she said sometimes when, you pe- when you're petting the cat, you just pet it the wrong way. And you just need to, you have to think about the cat and you have to adjust the way you're petting it. Usually you're petting it the, against the fur the wrong way. And you just need to think about the cat and love the cat and pet the cat a little bit better. Uh, you know, you, I just think you need to adjust the way that you're petting the, the community right now, okay? And Pastor, and I'm listening. I have my back turned to them, but I'm listening. And, uh, and he, just, he just says, like, really quick, like, in a moment, he just said, I'm not going to say her name, but he said, listen, sister, uh, there's no problem with the way I'm petting the cat. That cat just needs to turn around. And I, I, "And, and I, my coffee came out my nose, <laughs> out of my nose. <laughs> it was so like quintessential him, too, the way he, the way he said, he said that, if that cat just doesn't like the way I'm petting, it just got to turn around. And it's just fine. It's just fine. I don't have to change the lamp pad. We live in the age of the itch, do we not? The age of that itching ear, do we not? And a great number of teachers exist to scratch every itch. And so there's always, I mean, if there's just a little bit of disgruntled or not quite saying it the way you want it or something like that, there's always 100 more options. Go and find somebody who's going to say the thing that you want to be said. Teach the thing you want to be taught. Affirm the thing you want affirmed. I read a book earlier this year called Righteous Minds. It was recommended to me by, uh, by Jeremy. And the, the premise of the whole book, is, is, is it's full of data and all these stories, but the premise of the whole book is that our, our reasoning, our reasoning, and particularly our moral reasoning, is actually a slave to our passions. Our moral reasoning is a slave to our passions. You see, we like to think that we come to all of our conclusions and our stances, especially our moral conclusions and moral stances and opinions based off of objective, unbiased reasoning. That's how we come to all of our stances. But the whole point of the book is to basically explain and show research and data to how actually uh, uh, we, we don't actually use objective and unbiased reasoning to get to our moral stances, but we actually use subjective reasoning to defend the positions that we already have. We, just ha- we have a passion or a way we feel, or, or morality is not, the, the, the positive of the book is that we don't do moral reasoning, we do moral intuition. We have a, a thing that we, we think should be right or believe should be right. And a lot of times it's complicated how we come to those places over, through our family history and the place we grew up and context and all these kinds of things. And then eventually when we start to get into our, our, our adult life, we don't revisit all those things, we hold on to them and we, we go out and search for reasons why they're true and start to build like a, a, a fence, a, a, a moral reasoning around the stances we already have. This is why your Facebook arguments are pointless. All of them, all of them. And if you haven't gave up yet, you'll get there. You'll get there. Just keep chipping away. Because getting into like arguments on Facebook in the comments, that just don't open the comment section. But when you do and you start getting in there and start to dig around, it's based on an assumption that people's stances that they have are based on a foundation of reasoning. And that, and that if, if you want to address the stance that they have or the opinion that they have, all you have to do is just have a conversation about the reasoning behind it and expose maybe some of the flaws in that reasoning, have a dialogue about the moral reasoning behind a stance. But what you find out is, you can pick apart moral reasoning all you want. You can, you can dismantle every single reason a person has to believe a thing and what do they do at the end of it? Well, I don't care, I believe it anyways, and we, there's even, there's even, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, media pundits or whatever that would basically say, I don't care what you say, it's true. Which is basically a position of like, I'm not actually that concerned with facts, I just hold this position, I just hold this position. That's the premise of this whole book. The assumption is that people's moral stand is on a foundation of moral reasoning, but it's actually more on a stand of moral intuition, that we build reasoning around. unfortunately, when you, when you have like a, a moral intuition and you're, and you're only trying to find reasoning to, to up, uphold that, that stance that you already have, that's, that's actually part of what's behind itching ears. I want to go searching, I want to go searching for affirmation and collaborative information for the things that I already think and do. And unfortunately, this is the hard truth, I'm just going to skip, the, the hard truth is when you have itching ears, when I have itching ears, when you have itching ears, when people have itch- itching ears, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. Can't you? That's a, that's a hard thing to say. But you, you can't make the Word of God say whatever you want, but you can make the Bible say whatever you want. You can't make the comprehensive story and the truth say whatever you want because that's above your pay grade, but you can make the Bible, a literary document, say whatever you want it to say. Here's some of the strangest theological beliefs making the rounds in our world right now. I went diving around in the deep webs to look for some. That time Harold Camping predicted the end of the world on October 21st of 2011 based on a weird reading of the book of Revelation. That time Christian naturalists created nudist colonies and nudist churches based solely on a reading of Genesis 1 through 3 without any consideration uh, uh, for Christian teaching on modesty or human sexuality. Uh, uh, they just want to be naked, you know? They just don't want to be shackled by clothing. It's just That's all they want. Uh, uh, and they built a whole theological framework around it. How about the time Harold Camping predicted the end of the world on September 6, 1994? <laughs> he tried it twice. He tried it twice uh, and didn't take into consideration the whole verse where it said not a, not, no one will know the day or the hour. It would have saved him a lot of time. How about that time the U.S. government thought Romans 13 meant you could separate 2,000 children from their families and actually put them in inhumane detention centers? And not actually considering at all uh, the teaching about families, uh, 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 the the, the scriptures in Isaiah about who creates those unjust laws and so many examples throughout scripture of people actually practicing civil disobedience for the sake of causes of justice and mercy like uh, the midwives in Exodus. How about that time Harold Camping predicted the end of the world on May 21st, 2011? Just strike three, man, as she tried it another time. How about that time the Christian science community stopped participating in the entire medical field because they believe, and still to this day believe, that all sickness, all, all, all uh, 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 anything wrong with your body is actually just an illusion of the mind that you can only get rid of through prayer. Uh, um, And and you're free to practice, get involved in medicine or medication, but it'll actually hurt your efforts to actually pray away the illusions of those things that you're experiencing. You see, the Word, the Word can become a slave to our passions. It can. And we can abuse it and redesign it to submit to the passions that we already have, the moral intuitions we already have. Or, or, or... Our passions can become submitted to the word. The word can become a slave to your passions, or your passions can become slaves to the word. I think Paul's charge to teach, rebuke and encourage are prophetic in our age of itching ears. To teach, rebuke and encourage. to teach in an age of itching ears for expertise. My son is uh, an expert in everything. My three-year-old uh, son is an expert in all things. Um, a few months ago, I, I was gi- giving him a... I think, I think he wasn't... I don't even remember. I think he wasn't listening. Like, I told him seven times to do something. He didn't do, didn't do it. So it was time for a consequence. And uh, I, I think it was time out. And, we, you know, we, we went to time out, and he was just losing his mind. Like, uh, like just losing his mind. And I, was, I just didn't really want to deal with it. And so I decided this will be the moment that I teach my three-year-old son what's, what mercy is. So we go to timeout. I, he knows he needs a consequence. I'm like, listen, what did you do? Can you repeat back to me what you did? He repeats it back to me. I said, do you think you deserve a consequence? He said, yeah, I know I deserve a consequence. I said, well, listen, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you a consequence this time because I love you. I love you so much. And when you deserve a consequence and it's not given to you, that's called mercy. That's called mercy. I said, do you know what mercy is? He said, yeah, I know. I've never, no one has ever had this conversation with him. Do you know what mercy is? He says, yeah, totally, I get it. I said, tell me what mercy is. He says, well, it's like when daddies are like kind of mad and, you know, mercy. (laughs) You know, mercy. I said, okay, yeah, you get it. You totally get it. So then we were, later that afternoon, I'm putting him at, at, down for a nap, and he, I've already mentioned before, he always has these super long routines every time you put him down for anything. So I put him down for a nap, you sing a song, and then you leave, and um, sometimes he screams crazily for you to come back and sing another song, but you're not supposed to, it's just one song. So I, I started creating this, this rhythm where I would say to him, before I would sing the song at the door, I would say, I'm going to sing one song, I'm going to close this door, and if I hear a peep out of you, you know it's going to happen. So, because I don't want to, like, just make a random, you know, it's like, you know the consequence. I don't have to tell you the consequence, you know it, and you can make a choice. You can make a choice. So I, I, I'm at the door, and I say, I'm going to sing you a song, um, don't make, I'm going to shut this door, don't make another sound, or you know what's going to happen. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know what's going to happen. You're going to sing a song, you're going to close the door, I'm going to scream, you're going to come back in, you're going to be mad, and then I'm going to ask for mercy and you're going to sing another song. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, my son is broken, man. (laughs) (laughs) He's an expert, he knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. And I'm just thinking, you don't know what mercy is. You don't know, you don't know but he knows, he knows, he knows. You see, you cannot be taught what you think you already know. We live in an age of ubiquitous access to information, online degrees, audiobooks, cliff notes, summaries, and YouTube university, where everyone and simultaneously no one is an expert in anything and everything. Everybody thinks they know everything. And we have like transcendent, self-understanding as, as an expert more now than maybe we ever have. And what teaching does is when you, when you decide, like, you're going to step into a position of teaching, it assumes a gap in information or a gap in knowledge in the person that you're talking with. And uh, uh, what that does is it, it can be offensive. That assumption in that transaction can be offensive to people who think they're experts, they're experts. And so teaching, in, in our time and certainly in Timothy's time, can become a timid thing. It causes us to be timid to teach because we don't want to offend or overstep or encroach or make people upset. And in such a space, we might shy away from teaching, but whether or not the audience is in season or out of season, ready or not ready, open or not open, we must step into discharging the duty of our ministry to teach. We are still called to teach with patience and care, with patience and care, the history and the meaning and the reality of Jesus as Lord and the way of His kingdom. To teach the Word, to teach the Word, to teach the Word. To teach the Word in an age of itching ears for expertise, but also to correct, to correct and rebuke in an age of itching ears for moral relativity. See, moral relativity is the opposite of moral absolutes. If we actually agreed, all of us in this room and everybody around the world, if we agreed to a certain set of rights and a certain set of wrongs, then suddenly all of us would have to be accountable to that set of rights and that set of wrongs. Yet we live in a, a time of relativity because if you can if you can diminish the existence of absolute right and absolute wrong, suddenly you diminish the possibility for accountability or the need to be accountable, anyone to be accountable to each other or to certain absolute realities. And if you live in a morally relative system, you might hear things like, you tell me if you've ever heard this, you might hear things like, to each his own, to each her own. Let me be who I am. Don't judge me. What gives you the right? What gives you the right? Even, uh, even uh, what aboutism? like when you get in, into like a little bit of a confrontation with somebody and that person immediately saying, well, what about this in your life, this other thing? That's actually a symptom of moral relativity because what it's trying to do is distract from the current thing we're talking about by saying you're not a perfect messenger to deliver this thing. There's hypocrisy in your life. And so this, and, and somehow that actually has nothing to do with the thing we're currently talking about but it's becoming a very popular tool in dialogue in order to escape moral judgment in any way. What about this? What about that? What about this in your life? To expect people to be perfect in order to actually be able to have conversations like this. Listen to Isaiah 30. I'm just going to read it to you. Listen to Isaiah 30. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction, they say to the seers, they say to the seers, see no more visions. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And they say to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Don't do that anymore. But instead, tell us pleasant things. And give us what the Hebrew, what the Hebrew translates to, smooth delusions. Give us pleasant things and smooth delusions. And stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. You see correction in, a, in an age like this, in, a, in an itching ear space like this, correction can be equivocated to hate and ambivalent acceptance of everyone with no correction, no rebuke. Let's not do that. That can be equivocated to love. But Proverbs says the exact opposite. Proverbs says wounds from a friend can be trusted and an enemy multiplies kisses. That wounds, confrontation, correction, and rebuke is actually an expression done in the right way, done with patience and care, can actually be the highest expression of friendship. And yet the people who just express flattery with you all the time, they never actually deliver you wounds, that's actually a perfect expression of hatred from an enemy. It's the opposite. In my own ministry, I've I've tried, so many times to build trust with, with certain people for ages and ages before I start to feel like, oh, I think, I've, I, think I have enough trust here to maybe deliver a hard word, and, and it might be years of building trust, building trust, building trust, and then finally deliver a hard word, and they just leave. They're done. They're like, this is, uh-uh, this is not what I signed up for. And I know some of you in this room have experienced that exact same thing. Like, no, I'm not, this is not it. This is not happening. Just, know, just does not want any confrontation or correction. And there's been other times in my ministry where I wait and I wait and I wait because I'm trying to build trust and make sure that they're in season, even though I shouldn't be thinking about that, making sure they're trying to be in season. And then I'll try to bring that word, and they're actually sad that it took me so long to say it. Their immediate wonder is like, how long have you been thinking this? We've been in relationship for Months. When was the first time you thought of this? And to my shame, I'm just trying to decide for them when they're in season, when they're in season, when they're ready, when they're ready, when they're ready. In such a time as this, we might shy away from correction. We might shy away from rebuke. But whether or not the audience is in season or out of season, ready or not ready, open or not open, we are still called to correct with patience and care toward the character, integrity, and the ethics of Jesus as Lord. We teach the word and we correct toward the word. And not only do we teach and correct, but we encourage in an age of itching ears for outrage. Once upon a time, the Western conscious was overly positive and optimistic as it glossed over and refused to look for or see uncomfortable realities and evil truths but now you scroll through your Twitter feed and search for the unicorn of genuine gratitude and authentic encouragement. It's hard to find. We might feel like encouragement cheapens our outrage or that encouragement might make us look like we're naive to the times that we live in or that we aren't taking seriously the problems that need corrected, Uh, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. And in such a time as this, we might shy away from the just just authentic face-to-face encouragement of one another. I mean, I had a meeting this last week, a lunch meeting. And, uh, you know, I was just, a, a guy, he was interested in the underground. I just wanted to tell him a little bit more about it. And then at the end of the meeting, he just asked me, like, how are you doing? You know, how are you doing with the burden of leadership? And, you know, you just got a five-month-old, you're not sleeping ever. Like, just how are you holding up? And I just told him. You know, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Like it's, I'd like to sleep. Sleep would be good. That'd be cool. I look forward to that sometime. But I'm okay. I think I'm okay. And he just looked me, I made full eye contact, which is already uncomfortable. Nobody does that. <laughs> he just made full eye contact. And he just said, man, God sees you. He just. And I think he's just so proud of of what, of what you're doing. And I was so, I didn't, I, it was almost like, he wasn't asking me a question. Uh, he didn't need me to say anything. He was telling me something he, he knew that I already knew, but he was saying it anyways. And I just sat there and I was like, I don't know how to respond to this. But it's so good. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what is this? What is happening in this meeting? Oh, this is encouragement. This is encouragement. That's what this is. Uh, and, it's, and it's actually really good to just speak the word into people's lives, a word that they probably, it's not going to be nuanced or brand new to them, but it's something they probably already know, but maybe they don't know with their hearts, and you just need to speak that over them, and they don't need to re- re- reply in a certain way, or it doesn't need to be like, a, like this an amazing moment, it's just like this thing that God built into the life of his people, and I just thought, my goodness, what is this glass of water that this guy is delivering me? In such a time as this, we might shy away from that encouragement. But whether or not the audience is in season or out of season, ready or not ready, open or not open, we still must discharge the duties of our ministry to encourage with patience and care, to encourage. Because some people might not want to hear it, actually, but to deliver it with patience and care, affirming someone in how God sees them, in God's disposition toward them. We teach the word, we correct toward the word, we encourage in the word in such a time as this of itching ears. The worship team wants to come up. I just want to end with this final, final thought that I, as I was dealing with the text this week, it was kind of the lagging response in me that I felt like was maybe an invitation for me to respond and I, and I wanted to extend it to you. Leaders in the room, and you know who you are. and again. Formal title, no title. Leader in the room. What do your ears itch for? Because Paul isn't just saying there's going to be, there, there, there's, there's a time coming and it's already here where people will only want, they won't put up with sound doctrine, but they're, they're going to they're gonna crave what their itching ears want to hear and they're, they're going to go find a bunch of teachers to do it. And he's not just saying you keep your head. He's not just saying like, don't do that. But part of what he's saying is like, like, the reason why teachers begin to bend toward itching ears is because they itch for something too. And the, the breadth of the passage is a reminder of who you are, of who we are, of what you've seen, of what's going on in your life, and, you, and then because of that, you keep your head, you remember, you remember. When your ears itch for something else, you remember. We're tempted to shy away from teaching, we're tempted to shy away from correcting, we're even tempted to shy away from encouragement because, and I think it's because we itch in those moments for something else. We bend our opinions or our stances because we itch for celebrity, for fame, for notoriety from a growing ministry and what it might take to grow your ministry is to actually change what it is that you say. And so we itch for something, and it moves us actually to bend toward itching ears. We withhold correction from people or rebuke from people because we itch for false peace and shallow community. It's something we want. We don't want the mess that comes out of rebuke and confrontation and correction. We don't want all the insecurities that come out and all the all the things that have to be dealt with once you get at things in the light like that and, and what it means to like walk with people toward restoration. We don't want to do that. And so we itch for that as leaders and then we shy away from that rebuke and correction in the lives of others. We withhold encouragement because we itch to be strong and for people to fear us. We shy away from encouraging others because it makes us human with them. It puts us somehow on the same level with them. But we actually want people, we want to be, be seen as strong, larger than life. And we act. There's, I think there's a part of us that wants people to be afraid of us. And so we shy away from encouragement, love, face-to-face moments. Because we itch for that. But Paul says, keep your head and endure hardship. When you itch, when you itch, you remember the faith that you've seen in me, the faith that you've had since you were young, the faith that you saw in your mother and your grandmother, the things I went through, the things they went through. You remember. And you discharge the duties of your ministry. Keep your sights Your desire and your affections on Jesus. Nothing else is worthy of your loyalty. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else is worth submitting to or bending toward but Jesus. And the outflow of a life centered on Jesus is a life saturated in the world, in the Word, dwelling in it and preaching it. Dwelling in it and preaching it. You can't preach a Word that you do not know and have not tasted of do not drink dwell in the word preach the word as an outflow of a life centered on the affections of Jesus and if you find yourself timid to teach slow to correct hesitant to encourage I wonder if your ears have been itching for something other than the voice of Jesus some other thing I wonder if you've been itching for some other thing than the kingdom of God would you invite him this morning to expose that to expose that itch that you may have been bending toward. and Would you return all of your devotion and affections to him? Preach the word. Keep your head. Endure, endure hardships and discharge all the duties of your ministry. And this morning as we come to the table, I want you to hold that in your heart. Maybe that place where you've been bending, that itch that you've had, that he might be sharing with you. On the night he was betrayed, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and poured it out saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning come, not wanting any other teacher, not wanting any other word, not wanting any other idol, not wanting any other fascination or affection, just wanting Jesus and wanting His Word to dwell richly in your heart and then to spread forth from your life. When you're ready, the element's given for you.